For 20 years, our nations have provided for the military defense of Western Europe. For 20 years, we have held political consultations. And now the Alliance of the West needs a third dimension. It needs not only a strong military dimension to provide for the common defense, and not only a more profound political dimension to shape a strategy of peace, but it also needs a social dimension to deal with our concern for the quality of life in this last third of the 20th century. That was President Nixon on April 10, 1969, speaking to leaders on the 20th anniversary of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The future of NATO has been the subject of media buzz as of late, especially as GOP frontrunner Donald Trump has called the American-European Defense Alliance obsolete. Let me tell you, NATO is obsolete. It was 67 years, or it's over 60 years old. Uh, it is many countries, doesn't cover terrorism, okay? It covers the Soviet Union, uh, which is no longer in existence. And NATO has to either be rejiggered, rechanged, you know, changed for the better. I'm not saying the other thing that's bad about NATO, we're paying too much. We're spending a tremendous billions and billions of dollars on NATO. Here with us to talk about what Richard Nixon did in Europe and in NATO is Luke Nichter. Uh, Luke Nichter is a professor at Texas A&M University. He's an expert on the Nixon tapes. Uh, he wrote two volumes um, of transcribed uh, Nixon tapes from 1971 through 1973. And he's also the author of a new book uh, called Richard Nixon and Europe, the Reshaping of the Post-Atlantic War uh, pub World, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you, Luke, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. I just wanted to first ask you, why did you, uh, why did you decide to make Nixon and Europe your course of study, and how did you, how did you come to write the book? Well, it was, it was really accidental. Uh, I was, I think, like many graduate students, whether you're in geology or history or political science or whatever your field is, uh, there's not that much of a difference when it comes to history in, in terms of, you know, you want to do something new. You want to make your mark on something. You want to take maybe an existing topic or literature, but kind of extend it out in a new direction, a new branch of it. And for me, I was always interested in U U.S. and Europe because I had written a master's thesis on the expansion of the European uh, Union for the first time in East and Central Europe in 2004. So I was kind of interested in, in the presidency and politics and in Europe. And so U.S., uh, in, in hindsight, it all makes sense. At the time, it, it didn't come together so so cleanly. But, you know, what was kind of new was, was the Nixon administration, because this was about 30 years afterwards, and, and records were just starting to be declassified and released by the National Archives and other archives. And so, uh, you know, when you, when you put the sort of concentric circles together, uh, it made sense to do uh, uh, U.S. and Europe during, during the Nixon administration. And let's, let's start off by giving a little background here. Uh, the end of World War II um, and the beginning of the Cold War uh, what were what were transatlantic relations like during this period of time? Well, of, of course, the, the United States uh, emerged along with with Russia, arguably uh, the great victors, uh, the most powerful nations at at the uh, the end of World War II in terms of great kind of uh, geopolitical uh, balance of power, just because uh, just about the other powers of the world were so devastated, both whether it be Japan or whether it be uh, major European nations in, in Western Europe, primarily. And so uh, the, the U.S. emerged um, really because we had come to the, the assistance of, of Europe um, quite close to, the, to those countries. 
and then uh, you know uh, in, the, in a few years after the uh, the conclusion of World War II, uh, whether it was uh, the aid to Greece and Turkey, whether it was the the, the Marshall Plan aid under President Truman, we obviously became not just militarily close, but also economically close uh, with these nations. So you saw kind of the, the beginnings of uh, transatlantic relations rooted in those efforts in those, just those first handful of years. Uh, and and for, in the United States, politically, there was a great transformation because, in, especially in the Republican Party up to that point, there was a very significant isolationist wing within the Republican Party. And I think for, for many of those isolationists, you know, take Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., who I'm working on now, the first biography on him, for a first full biography on him for, for Yale University Press, uh, the war was a transforming moment when it, 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 it was no longer viable to be isolationist in a world where enemies could, had global reach and where uh, soon atomic weapons could, 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 uh, could uh, reap destruction almost anywhere uh, with consequence all over the world. And so it transformed many uh, former isolationists, especially in the Republican Party, who uh, went from isolationism to really embracing um, uh, certainly mutual defense, uh, and, and the other sort of underpinnings that became the core of what the, the NATO treaty was. Fast forward to 1968, uh, President Nixon uh, is elected. Um, how did, over the course of this 20 years from the end of the Cold War to the Nixon administration, how did U.S.-European relations evolve, and where were they at the time of the Nixon administration? Well, Nixon himself said uh, at one point um, uh, when he compared relations with Europe with uh, the, the building relations with China, for example, he, very different experiences. Uh, we had 20 solid years of relations with, with Europe, and of course going back much beyond that. I mean, Americans have a couple hundred years of heritage and shared language and culture and religion with, with Western Europeans, whereas we had no, no sorts of you know, similar, there's no similar sort of analog uh, with the Chinese. Uh, yet Nixon often said that relations with Europe were more, more difficult to construct and maintain. He said because it's like a family, you know, a family that's family members that are very close uh, tend to argue more with each other. Whereas if you're if just getting to know someone, you don't really know enough about them to have many strong disagreements. So uh, what I would say is, is, over those 20 years, while there had been a sense, I think, a bipartisan sense of a lessening of Cold War tensions, milestones like the death of Stalin. Um, made the Cold War seem, I think, a, a, a slightly less dangerous place in, in the world to, to live in at that time. At the same time, we had uh, lots of disputes back and forth on who should pay the costs in, in, in NATO, uh, how many troops should be, American troops should be stationed in West Germany and other places. Uh, we had you know, lots, of, lots of kind of fights and bickering and trade. And, of course, our, our, the, from the U.S. perspective, our, our primary goal with, uh, with much of this was to rebuild Europe, its economies, uh, help it to rearm, and get it to a point where it could stand on its own again. And by the time that, that Richard Nixon won uh, the presidency in 1968, uh, parts of Europe had not only uh, begun to stand on their own, but actually were economic and commercial competitors of the U.S. So I think by the time Nixon was elected, it was time to take a new look at the alliance. In late, um, or in, in early 1969, um, Nixon decides to make his first foreign trip to Europe. Why, why did he choose uh, why did he choose Europe? Why didn't he choose? Why didn't he try to uh, go to Asia early on? Why was Europe uh, so important? 
Well, you know, based on the records that we have, uh, Nixon decided to go to Europe, and it's it's so interesting. It's it's hard to believe a president, especially today, could do something similar as Nixon did in early 1969. He visited the European capitals and spoke in European parliaments before he even gave his first address to our own U.S. Congress. And so it was very. It's got a lot of attention. This was really different, you know, what he what he had to offer over his predecessors, Kennedy and Johnson. And I think what what Nixon believed, um, you know, and it's open open for debate. Surely, uh, what Nixon believed is is uh, he believed that that uh, Kennedy and especially Johnson had uh, to some degree not paid enough attention to uh, European allies. They had, we had neglected them to some extent. That we weren't always good at consulting them regularly. And I think Nixon wanted to send a very early signal, uh, long before any signals were sent to adversaries, uh, Soviet Union and China, that Nixon was up to something with them, too. Uh, he wanted to send a strong signal to our traditional allies of 20-plus years that they were the most important alliance uh, in terms of the American perspective, and he wanted to, uh, to, to bolster, to emphasize the importance of that relationship before doing anything else. So that was the plan. You, uh, you highlight a certain speech uh, that Nixon gave on the 20th anniversary of NATO. Uh, he said, he told Western leaders, for 20 years our nations have provided for the military defense of Western Europe. For 20 years we have held political consultations. Now the alliance of the West needs a third dimension. Uh, what was this third dimension that Nixon was speaking about? Well, this is, fast, this is a fascinating speech, uh, and, and still to this day, and not, not a whole lot of research has been done on this. You see, when Nixon was taking this, this fresh look at, at the, the NATO alliance, I, I was alluding to there was a, the fact there was a general sense of a lessening of Cold War tensions over the course of these 20 years, it was, uh, and it was gradual over time. The trouble with that was we had an interruption in that lessening. We had uh, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which occurred in the middle of the 1968 presidential election in August of 68. And so all of a sudden, we, people wondered, uh, maybe the world's not a, a, a less dangerous place, because here's danger staring us right in, in, in the eyes. Uh, luckily, it turned out that Soviet intentions did not go beyond Czechoslovakia, and that their, their, uh, their intentions ended right there. Uh, and um, uh, this was the beginning of the Prague Spring, and we've had many springs in other parts of the world since 1968. So I think Nixon was was caught, you know I think taking a fresh look at NATO but taking a cautious look, and what he was doing was that the, the the major speech in April of 1969 was the vehicle he used to take the fresh look. It, it happened April 1969 happened to be the 20th anniversary of uh, the NATO treaty, the founding of of the alliance, and so he he wanted something big. He wanted he didn't just want another uh, speech of words. He wanted to have some kind of a concrete proposal. And he surveyed a number of his staff, and uh, whether you look at the records of Steve, Steve Hess, who worked for Pat Moynihan, or you look at Bill Sapphire and others, um, the, the idea that Nixon proposed, he collected the best ideas he could find, was what Nixon suggested was basically giving something to NATO that was kind of like the Council on Urban Affairs uh, domestically here in the U.S., the idea that as we're entering the Dayton era, that even for military alliances could take on a non-military function. It was the first time NATO done this. 
And so the proposal Nixon had was to create something that was non-military uh, in NATO, that uh, that NATO could take on a role. Uh, after all, NATO's main job was to prevent conflict and lessen tensions between East and West, that it could do that in a non-military way. And so what Nixon proposed was an organization called the Committee on the Challenges of Modern Society. And it could look at uh, do cultural exchanges, it could look at pollution, it could look at population density, it could look at waterways and shipping and trade. It could do these kind of softer things. These sort of, it's an exercise in soft power, that there was an opportunity there to also lessen tensions, not just about armies negotiating with armies. On November 3rd of that year, uh, Nixon gave what was popularly known as the silent majority speech. Um, he also rearticulates re his foreign policy doctrine, um, which he gave on the island of Guam in July of that year. He, he kind of makes a three-point uh, plank. Uh, first, that the United States would keep all its treaty commitments. Uh, the second was that we would provide a nuclear, uh, nuclear power uh, to countries um, whose freedom was threatened uh, by, by a nu another nuclear power. Um, and in third, uh, in cases of other types of aggression, um, we shall uh, furnish military and economic assistance uh, when, requests, when requested in accordance with those uh, treaty commitments. Now, this speech specifically deals with Vietnam, but th it seems to me that there's broader policy implications here, uh, especially for Europe. Can you, can you uh, touch upon that a bit? Sure. I think first and foremost, there's kind of two. You know, first of it's the, examining first the rhetoric of, of Nixon in this in the speech in Guam of, of July of 1969, and then secondly, kind of asking ourselves what were his intentions. I think looking at the rhetoric and the words that he used, <clears throat> this was clearly an amendment of uh, a modification of the Truman and, and Kennedy doctrines. Which, if you if you compare the the Nixon statement or the Nixon doctrine or the Guam doctrine as it was initially called with uh, prior statements made by Presidents Truman and Kennedy. Uh, Truman and Kennedy made much uh, broader commitments, almost sort of blank check commitments, that the U.S. would respond to sort of aggression anywhere it needed to. This, of course, began uh, with Truman uh, with the assistance to, to Greece and Turkey when communism was spreading and uh, the, the new idea of a domino theory was scary to American policymakers. I think uh, what Nixon was, was is admitting here, which many people realized at the time that he gave this address in Guam in July of 1969, is that in the intervening 20 years since the end of World War II, the U.S. had overstretched itself, overstretched itself militarily in Southeast Asia, uh, economically, the gold standard, uh, and the great society. And I think what Nixon was doing is kind of um, not abandoning allies, but I think he was he was admitting that the U.S. was now officially, formally acknowledging the entry into an era where we couldn't be all things to all people at all times and all places of the world. So I think just looking at the words, that's it's a clear modification of the of the Truman and the Kennedy doctrines. Now, scholars have still debated on, on what did really Nixon mean by this. What were the policy implications? And uh, I, I wouldn't say that Nixon. Um, there's been some debate whether this was a global doctrine of Nixon's, a global foreign policy doctrine. I don't know that it was a global doctrine because Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, clearly cared more about some parts of the world than others. Some parts were clearly more in vital national American interests than uh, than other parts were. But I think what Nixon was, was referring to is he was he was giving big signals here to the Chinese, to the Russians, to NATO. There, there's a little bit of a, uh, there's something in the speech for everyone. 
one, I think. If, if you're an ally, what you're hearing from Nixon is uh, you're not going to abandon us, even if you're going to reduce the scope of future commitments. And I think to adversaries, uh, this, the, the rhetoric of Nixon showed, I think, an open-mindedness during the Cold War that reflected uh, an era of less, uh, less intentions, that Nixon was uh, uh, setting a new tone, if not a new policy. And so I think uh, it was a real uh, opening point that uh, uh, Nixon was announcing that he was taking a new direction in foreign policy. You, you mentioned that Nixon wanted Europe to carry a large burden of its own defense. Um, at the time, how much, how much of the burden was, uh, was the U.S. shouldering? And what was Nixon's plan to share that responsibility among the other powers of Europe? It's a tough question to, to answer. I mean, obviously, the, the U.S., it's like the U.S. and NATO, even today, or the U.S. and, and the U.N. I mean, the, the larger countries always share, you know, the, the greater part of the burden. In 1969, I think, getting back to the point I made earlier, which was um, uh, by, by 20 years now since the end of, of the war, I think what, what Nixon liked to say was that the post-war was over. Uh, the post-war, by definition, was a period where uh, Americans, in particular, offered aid to allies and others to help them get back on their feet. So Nixon was really the, he, he, he tried to <clears throat> articulate that the, the, the post-war period, this idea of, of never-ending aid, you know, was coming to a close. Um, so I think the U.S. did shoulder most of the burden. Uh, and the Europeans also shouldered uh, a big burden, especially the British. Uh, West Germany, the larger nations, to some degree the French, while their independent nuclear deterrent was a rival of ours and of NATO's because De Gaulle, uh, Charles de Gaulle and the French had withdrawn from NATO's integrated command structure just a few years before. Uh, these other nations also shouldered a, a significant burden, especially relative to the size of their economies. But I think the question was, you know, we had uh, the 1960s was, was almost entirely uh, a decade of Democratic administrations. It was normal that a, that a Republican administration uh, by someone who was vice president under Eisenhower would take a fresh look at uh, transatlantic policy in the late 1960s, moving into a new decade on top of that. So I think Nixon was really considering uh, um, early on, the records suggest, suggest to me, he was considering a number of alternatives, and he, he, he didn't quite have his mind made up yet over which way he was going to go. How did um, Nixon's China initiative um, affect our European policy? Did, did it in any way, since it was on Russia's eastern flank, did it in any way relieve pressure on the Europeans? How, how did the Europeans feel uh, about President Nixon's trip to China during that period of time? Well, Nixon, when Nixon announced uh, the, the China announcement in July of 1971 uh, was, uh, was a shock to the world, and including, uh, including our allies, including those who uh, were neighbors in East Asia of, of China. So I think um, uh, for our European allies, I think their big concern was, uh, were we sufficiently consulted on this? You know, what is the U.S. proposing exactly in terms of this presidential visit to, to China? Uh, it, the, the major impact in the fall of 1971, following Nixon's China announcement that he would go, he would visit the follow, early the following year to, to China, and he would be the first president to do so, was a, a series of negotiations. Nixon had summits with the British, the French, uh, the West Germans. Uh, everybody wanted to know about China. Overnight, it became the, the, just a sensational story. Uh, soon after Nixon's announcement, other Western European leaders 
some of whom had recognized red, red China, as it was called, and others had not. They wanted to go to China. They wanted to have a policy akin to Nixon's. They wanted to start new diplomatic relations. It was, a, it was not just an announcement that changed Sino-U.S. relations. It was an announcement that changed relations uh, between China and the rest of the world as well. Uh, so China became the overwhelming, uh, interesting uh, topic of interest, even in, in U.S.-European discussions throughout that entire fall. Uh, again, what was, what was Nixon up to? And I think they were impressed by his surprise announcement, but I think also a little bit concerned. Uh, this was someone who liked to kind of surprise people, keep them off guard. This was a Nixon shock, uh, one of one of several that happened even during the year 1971, along with the end of the gold standard, the India-Pakistan war, and a few other things. Um, I think so. It, it shocked them. It impressed them. Uh, but it, 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 it was definitely keeping them off balance, too. One month later, in August 1971, um, the powers in Europe and the Soviet Union signed the Berlin Agreement. Um, to reduce tensions uh, within the German city. Uh, how did this come about, and what exactly did they accomplish? Well, uh, the Berlin Agreement, according to the records we have available, and there are still some that are not, and there's parts of the negotiations that never made it to, to paper records, as, uh, as far as I understand, um, it was, um, it was uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Rush, our ambassador in West Germany, who did a lot of the negotiations uh, for the Berlin Agreement. And as I understand, uh, according to Kissinger's memoirs and other records, it took about 18 months of negotiations. And the status of Berlin had always been tricky. I mean, since the Berlin airlift in, in the, the late uh, 1940s, I mean, you have this isolated sort of city, this island city of West Berlin, surrounded by, in the Cold War jargon, enemy territory of East Germany uh, and East Berlin itself, uh, which was a Soviet-occupied zone. So I think this, the awkward status uh, inherent to West, the city of West Berlin was, was always a, a hot topic during the Cold War. Uh, it, was a, it was a problem during the Kennedy years, the Johnson years. There were a number of years where it was the number one, really the number one issue that was sort of unsolved in, in, in the U.S.-Soviet relations. It was a hotbed of espionage, of military activity, of aggression by the Soviets in West Berlin, provocative West German politicians like Willy Brandt speaking out against the Soviets. So for both sides, it was a real, really the, the epicenter of the Cold War. And so what, the, what Nixon, I think, insisted on, and what the Soviets insisted on, was the status of Berlin had to be normalized a, a little more. It couldn't keep coming up every few years as uh, this hot button in the Cold War. And so the Berlin Agreement, I think, in many ways, was something that had to be solved between the U.S. and the Soviets could move on to other detente-related uh, negotiations. And I think without the Berlin Agreement, I, I just don't see how a year later we could have had the, the, the Nixon and uh, Brezhnev signing SALT One in the Kremlin. I think uh, the Berlin Agreement had to be solved before we could move on to bigger subjects. You mentioned the, um, the SALT One Agreement in May of 72 and the signing of the Anti-Ballistic uh, Missile Treaty. Um, what, what did this... In terms of, in the context of Europe, what did this accomplish? Did it reduce the need, this new detente, did it reduce the need for Europe to up its defenses? Well, the, well, the signing of SALT-1 and ABM, I think, to some degrees, reflected that that, that all people did live in, in an era of, of reduced Cold War tensions. But I think for some Europeans, it was also a little bit scary, because the, the U.S. was the ultimate backstop of Western Europeans during the Cold War. That if things ever got a little too hot, you know, the Cold War had, had it turned hot at any moment, and it was close a few times, the Berlin, Berlin airlift, uh, the Cuban missile crisis, 
uh, the the Europeans always had this this understanding implicit that the U.S. would be there in one way or another, whether we're talking con- political guarantees, conventional forces, or or uh, nuclear weapons. And by agreeing to sign the ABM Treaty, because the U.S. up to that point had refused, Nixon was the one that changed the policy. Uh, in this change of policy, I think Europeans rightly wondered, you know, has, has the American commitment to us changed? Has it been diluted? Has it been lessened? And so I think um, you know, there were some mixed signals, and, I, I, and it made it, it these, these big agreements that Nixon had with adversaries, with China, the opening in relations, and with the Soviet Union, uh, sometimes there were negative consequences for our relations with our allies, as I show in, in these chapters of the book and elsewhere in the book, because I think the allies, uh, as the U.S. was re- reassessing its relations with adversaries and, and spending a lot of time to do that, uh, Europeans rightly wondered whether or not uh, the, the U.S. Uh, government had secretly reassessed negotiations and relations with, with allies, with Europeans. So they were, again, caught off guard and a little bit nervous by all these changes. There seems to be a kind of an apparent contradiction, not an actual contradiction, but an apparent contradiction uh, in the age of detente uh, with um, uh, President Nixon's uh, Guam doctrine. I asked um, historian uh, Roham Alvandi the same question regarding our backing of the Shah. Um, but this has to do with our, our relations, our, our bilateral relations with some of the European nations. Um, Nixon was willing to maintain a bilateral defense cooperation with France, um, effectively hiding from the Soviets that we were willing to do more for our allies. Um, does this form of the Nixon doctrine, giving allies the ability to defend themselves, does it help or contradict what Nixon was trying to accomplish with detente? Well, it's a it's a complicated question, um, and I would say does it does it help or complicate what Nixon was trying to do with NATO? Of course, within NATO was a was a multilateral forum, yet Nixon clearly and Kissinger still preferred bilateral relations as opposed to multilateral relations. Nixon and Kissinger, I think, both thought, and in many ways rightly so, that in multilateral forums, whether it be the UN or whether it be NATO or whether it be a voice in the European community at the time, we had one seat and one voice. And we were outnumbered sometimes uh, when we took unpopular positions. But in bilateral relations, we had a much better chance of of, uh, uh, getting our way uh, in terms of American interests. And so I think uh, uh, what Nixon's policy did is it did put strain on multilateral forums. Uh, Nixon gave a, a new look to forums like NATO, but it was clear that negotiations, whether with China, whether with the Soviet Union, and as well with European allies, we would consider to continue a very healthy bilateral relationship with them too. Um, France is a, is a fascinating uh, point that you bring up because we still don't have all the records from this. I think there's reason to suggest, as I do in the book, that part of the reason Nixon was willing to secretly give French um, the military and nuclear assistance was because it was essentially kind of off the books. And if it was off the books, as we were going into talks with the Soviets and with SALT-1 and other various agreements, and when both sides are, are getting plan, are proposed, making proposals to reduce forces and stockpiles, uh, if, you, if you're making agreements that are off the books, those aren't part of the agreement. And so by secretly cooperating with de Gaulle and Pompidou's uh, force de frappe, as it was called, the French nuclear program, uh, it was a way of uh, um, 
uh, I guess, kind of making sure that we got the better deal in salt. But for Europeans to have learned that we were doing that, uh, De Gaulle was, had been a pariah in Europe for years, and it was certainly we could not, it could not be known that we were giving any kind of technological or military assistance to France that approached what we were giving what we called our allies, the British, or even the, the West Germans. Um, so it, it was a very complicated undertaking, a very complicated game of web of negotiations that Nixon and Kissinger were, uh, were, were trying. And I think some things worked and some things didn't work. Uh, you write uh, in the book that uh, 1972 was a big year for the president. He had gone to China. He had uh, had the summit uh, with the Soviets in Moscow, and he was just about ending the Vietnam War. He also got selected with a 49-state landslide. Uh, but one of the things he announces towards the end of the year is that in, as part of the new administration in 73, he's going to make 1973 the year of Europe. He's going to recalibrate and reaffirm uh, those alliances. Why did he? Why did he decide to choose? Why did he choose to do that uh, then? And what did he hope to accomplish um, in that year? Well, I think the year of Europe. Uh, I think was more often than not, it was really a, a defensive announcement by Nixon. I think by the end of 1972, the Europeans had had criticized Nixon for, in some ways, doing what what Nixon had criticized Kennedy and Johnson doing. In neglecting Europe or not adequately consulting. And so I think Nixon, um, after spending a couple of years in negotiations with the Soviets and making breakthroughs with China, wanted to reaffirm for Europeans, in a way similar as he did in early 1969, that uh, just because I'm doing other things around the world doesn't mean that uh, the U.S.-European relationship is no longer important. So he announced that with those, those the first phase of breakthroughs already uh, in, uh, already behind us, with the Soviet Union and with China, that Nixon would, re would essentially kind of return to his roots. We would we would reemphasize relations with allies um, and spend uh, he hoped you know much of the year doing that. I think Nixon wanted to make another visit in 1973. That was clear. He wanted to have some kind of a treaty that addressed both uh, closening political relations and military relations. Uh, and uh, so I think he, he had a number of initiatives that he hoped to pursue during 1973. And, of course, uh, the, uh, Henry Kissinger said to me, um, he said it was a great disappointment because, of course, most of this didn't happen. You write that there was thinking within the Nixon administration uh, to possibly treat the Europeans much like we treated the Soviets. Uh, that is to incentivize them to cooperate with us. Um, we could help the Europeans with security if they would be more cooperative on trade and monetary policy. Uh, was this plan ever impl implemented? Well, it, linkage was to some degree. Uh, and it, up to that point, it really been, um, I think, had a more central place in, in American negotiations with adversaries up to that point, as you, the example you gave there with the Soviet Union and Vietnam and China, the triangular diplomacy. And uh, the, the, it, it, it worked, but I think it was less successful when it was applied to allies. Uh, what the, a good example that I write about a little bit in the book, although there has just been very little research done on this, is it was called, uh, it's called offset with the Germans. And this is one in particular where um, uh, what, the, what, US, what the U.S. fundamentally argued was that because we stationed so many uh, GIs in West Germany, because we, our, our security guarantee remained so high, uh, in terms of the protection of Europe and our commitment to NATO, the, the U.S. asked for um, uh, some economic, be monetary benefits from the West Germans 
to, as, they, as the U.S. called it, to reduce the foreign exchange costs of all of the Americans in, uh, in West Germany that were stationed there. And the, it didn't really work very well. And it didn't work very well because for a couple of reasons, generally and specifically. Generally, it didn't work very well because I think Europeans didn't like the idea of, of the same kinds of tactics that Americans used with adversaries being used with allies countries that the U.S. had had 20 years of relations with. Uh, and it seemed kind of crude to some Europeans. Specifically, it would, this, the policy of offset, for example, in terms of linkage, was, was difficult to solve the Germans because after a while it made it seem like uh, the Germans were being asked to, to pay, as they called it, the occupation costs of American soldiers being stationed in Germany. And that was a pretty tough sell uh, to, to, if you were a German politician arguing to the German people that we need to you know, raise your taxes effectively because you need to pay more of the cost of, of the Americans who are stationed here. Um, so it, it, it didn't work that well. There are some places it worked well. Uh, the, the collapse of Bretton Woods, uh, John Connolly um, uh, was able to extract some economic and, and monetary concessions uh, in exchange for political guarantees with the Smithsonian Agreement that was signed uh, in the end of uh, December of 1971. But in general, I think Europeans uh, who had experts in diplomacy, some of who thought they were better at it than Americans were, didn't like what they thought these same crude tactics being applied to them. So I think there were limits on, on how much we could use uh, linkage you know, with allies. Donald Trump has made a lot of noise on the campaign trail this week on the issue of NATO, uh, saying that the organization uh, might have outlived its usefulness. Uh, what can Trump learn from the Nixon years, uh, particularly President Nixon's approach to Europe and his repurposing and revisioning of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? Well, I think some of the, the points that are being made by Donald Trump, there, there is a, you know, a, a little, to some degree, I think they sound a little bit like um, some of the concerns that that candidate or former Vice President Nixon had in the late 1960s. The concern that uh, much of Europe was an economic competitor with us, uh, questioning what exactly the, the correct level of American commitment should be to NATO, uh, how big should NATO be, what should its mission be. A lot of this sounds, sounds pretty similar uh, to what we were talking about in the late 1960s. And whether Trump wins or it doesn't matter who wins, I think after we've had a president for 18 years, uh, President Obama, and I think whoever wins, is probably going to take a fresh look at policy with NATO, just in the same way that, that Richard Nixon did after eight years uh, in the 1960s of President Dean Johnson. So it's, it's not quite clear. I think um, uh, perhaps it'll be like Richard Nixon, where a new a dimension of NATO will be suggested. Uh, but I think ultimately um, uh, what, we've show, what history has shown and what, what uh, Trump and others may learn from is that we're, we're not, although I think, you know, there's no more Cold War, there's no World War III out there, and so I think there's that, that uh, tendency to, to say, let's pull the troops out. Uh, why do we need NATO anymore? But yet, uh, despite the, the evidence and the, the, the arguments for doing so, we just haven't been willing to do that yet. Uh, we still have we've developed these ties, military and political, with Europe. These forces are standing by just in case we need them, even though we haven't, there hasn't been a World War III, thank God. So I think what we're likely to see is whoever wins uh, this coming uh, November is likely to take that fresh look. And, and just like Nixon, I think try to reappraise what the, uh, the future role should be of the United States and of NATO itself. Uh, well said. Thank you so much, Luke, for your time. Oh, thank you very much.